from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. My name is Lenny Reinhardt, and today is part two of our Veterans Day episode, looking at the conflict in Afghanistan and the dichotomy between the civilian and military cultures that exists in the United States today. Specifically, we'll be looking at military transitions and the challenges that service members face after they hang up their uniforms. We first conclude our conversation with retired Army Colonel and Loyola Professor Paul Cantwell. We then speak with an expert in the area of military transitions with Wendy Reinhardt, a PhD candidate exploring this important topic. With the death of bin Laden, why was the United States still there for so long? Well, you know, and, and that is something I would imagine that in the coming weeks and months and, and probably in the next couple of years, we'll see a lot of detailed study on all of it. Uh, you know, and, and when you look at everything that went on from, you know, let's say 2006, and, uh, you know, until now, what did, what did we see? We saw in 2009, President Obama recommitting to Afghanistan, putting 17,000 more troops in. It was not, it, he developed a, a, a national military strategy that was not going to uh, allow safe havens in, in Pakistan, that NATO was, con- was going to continue to do their uh, reconstruction operations. They bring General McChrystal in because things were starting to go sideways and they, and they took, uh, you know, I think they added, we had somewhere between 60 and 68,000 forces in then. From that point in time, then after McChrystal comes General Petraeus, and then there's talk about a buildup of U.S. forces where General Obama sent, where President Obama sends 30 more troops in and talks about a withdrawal two, two years later, et cetera. I think, uh, you know, as long as we have a situation in, when the, in which the U.S., the president is also the U.S. commander-in-chief and, and political leaders, uh, albeit wearing their commander-in-chief hats, are making these sorts of military strategic decisions. Uh, you, you know, you might see, you'll, you'll see these changes in philosophy and, and commitment, uh, et cetera. You know, it, it, it's hard to say what's right and what's wrong. It's hard to say if, you know, had President Obama decided in 2009 to pull out rather than recommit, what might have happened? President Trump had done the, the same thing. You know, would we be where we are now? It's very, very difficult. Uh, very difficult to predict. Mm-hmm. So, what year yeah. did you come out of the military? I retired at the end of 2014 after 25 years. And what was the current state of affairs at that point? At that point, uh, as I recall, President Obama had just announced that U.S. troops would withdraw by the end of 2016. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure it was 2014 he announced that. Um, I remember a unity government with uh, then-President Ghani and uh, and co-President Abdullah Abdullah were sort of resting 
uh, for for control. So um, that's what was happening in the 2014 to sort of 2017 uh, period of time. Then 2017, uh, I recall, I think we had the largest non-nuclear bombing uh, situation we've 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 ever had. Uh, so just when you think we're going to be withdrawing troops at the end of 2016, early 2017 comes along, uh, and and we drop the largest nuclear non-nuclear bombs we've ever dropped on the the cave complex in Nandahar. Uh, so uh, you know, and and then President Trump in the very early days of administration said, you know, we're not going to pull out. We're going to recommit. We're going to win this war, uh, et cetera. And obviously, um, that turns around to the point where, um, you know, 2018, he says we're we're staying, and the Taliban is escalating again to the point where we get to 2019 and we start peace talks with the with the Taliban. So, uh, you know, inter interesting process. Uh, are the Taliban the people with whom we're supposed to be negotiating? Well, I, I, you know. Is, is there anyone else really, right? I mean, we, we could have been negotiating with the de facto government of Afghanistan and, and goodness knows I'm, we should have been talking to them. I don't know if we were or we weren't. Um, but you know, after that long, we'd had 18 years basically then of Afghanistan leaders. Uh, and we probably had a pretty good temperature about whether uh, the, the Afghan political structure would be able to survive, whether the Afghan national security forces would be able to survive and, and create a, a stable and secure environment, et cetera. So, you know, maybe we come naturally to the point where we have to talk about uh, a withdrawal and, and, and negotiate with someone. And obviously the political leader saw the Taliban is it. Let's focus now on the actual withdrawal pullout that process. I think one thing that gets lost in the mix when people discuss the pullout is the fact that, yes, there was, you know, Taliban, there was Af Afghanistan forces, there's United States, but there's also the, the aspect of the Islamic State that was very present in that region. So when people discuss the pullout and those that are critical of it, what is something that you think the general public needs to understand as far as the logistics that has to be taken into consideration when it's an operation of this magnitude? One of the, one of the really, really in, uh, in, enlightening sources of information for me on this, because I look at this now like a, you know, is it civilian like, like everyone else does? Uh, and I watched the hearings in both the House and the Senate uh, at which General Milley testified um, uh, the uh, the CENTCOM commander, General McKenzie, uh, testified, uh, Secretary Austin did, etc. Et it's obviously a, a very, very complicated uh, environment. Uh, it, to, to conduct uh, any kind of withdrawal, even under peaceful conditions, requires a lot of logistical support, uh, you know, particularly in terms of uh, airplanes and runways, right? Uh, if you're going to get people out, you need to get as many aircraft as you can, and you need to try to get as many people as you can on board those aircraft when they're going out. In this particular situation, the circumstances were politically created or otherwise. You know, we had one airfield. Bagram was was no longer available to us, uh, and uh, and and Bagram is located in a really really difficult place. If you uh, it, or uh, uh, Kaya. 
uh, Kabul International Airport, now Hamid Karzai International Airport, is located in a very difficult place. You have to fly over very high mountains and descend very, very quickly uh, in, into a valley. In the old days, when we were taking off and, and, and coming in from there, uh, you had to be very, very careful because all of these thousands of, of Stinger missiles that had been left behind from the uh, Northern Alliance war against the Russians were still in the hands of some bad guys. And flying into this confined mountain pass uh, into this relatively small valley with large aircraft was really hard because all the bad guys were right there. Um, so there were, there were nat natural friction points uh, all over the place. The, the number of airplanes, the number of runways available, trying to maintain security, uh, et cetera. Uh, and to me, all of that dictates that you have to have a much longer timeline, much more time probably would have helped so that you could conduct things in an order more gradual and, and orderly fashion. But yeah, I like everyone else watched in horror at the, at the, at the film that I was seeing out at, at Kaya. It was very, very difficult to watch. Connecting it back to, to the law and the legal implications of that pullout, are there responsibilities on behalf of the United States? I know that the Air Force OSI, they were doing an investigation as far as the folks that were on the outside of the planes that were taking off. In international law, what, if any, responsibilities or implications are there for that kind of a withdrawal thinking of the casualties that took place with it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And to tell you the truth, Lenny, I've not thought about it at, at all uh, in, in that regard. You know, the only thing that comes to mind right away is, are the legal ob obligations of an occupying power, uh, you know, to keep the lights on, to keep government running, to keep citizens safe, to have the essential uh, processes and powers of, of government going on, et cetera. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily applicable in this particular case because we we had an Afghan government and then we had a newly declared ta Taliban-led uh, Afghan government. So we were clearly no longer an occupying power. And I don't so I don't know if any of the responsibilities that flow from uh, being an occupied power would would necessarily apply in uh, in this in this particular case. I will think I will think about it though. I've, I've not looked at it from that angle. That's a very, very deep question. At this point, there are few, if any, American soldiers left in Afghanistan. At the same point, the conflict in Iraq is very much diminished from what it was in years past. What we are left with now, like in so many previous conflicts, is more than likely there's going to be what's called a drawdown. Troops are going to be released from their contracts. They're going to be sent back into the civilian workforce. And I know that's one of your personal passions is as far as veterans issues. And so could you talk to me about your passion, how you view this transition from your perspective? Sure, sure. To, to sort of to lay the groundwork for the, for the listeners first, let's recognize sort of where we are contextually. Um, at this point in time, our active duty military forces are between, and this is all four uh, services, somewhere between 1.2 and 1.3 uh, million folks on active duty service. Um, so uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, uh, our reserve components are about of, of equal number. Um, if we recognize, taking a look at the active duty force, um, what, what we're talking about now, we've got that universe of 1.2 to 1.3 million people, family members, all that kind of stuff. You're probably talking about 
uh, a universe of somewhere around 2.5 to 3 million folks or so. Um, recognizing that folks typically uh, sign now four-year contracts to enlist uh, in the United States military, um, and that only about 18% of folks, uh, officers and enlisted who sign up for military service retire, that means that virtually every year you're going to have about 250,000 people move out of the Department of Defense and their military status and then revert to civilian life as, uh, you know, as, as just you know, run, run of the mill civilians. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty large number. Uh, in Illinois, for example, we've got somewhere in the high 700,000s of veterans. I think it's around 775,000 or so. About half of those are in the Chicago Cook County metropolitan uh, area. Uh, and, you know, other larger states have large numbers of, of veterans as well. The current estimate of the veteran population in the United States is somewhere between 20 and 23 million. Uh, you know, number, numbers are not great. Um, but... So, so we see this universe of folks who are going from uh, military to, to civilian status, about 250,000 every year joining the, joining the ranks of others. The vast majority of folks do not really have then, after they get their DD-214 or their discharge certificate from the military service, the vast majority of those folks will no longer have any contact with the Department of Defense nor will they have any contact with the Department of, of Veterans Affairs because most folks have served their three or four years. They might have their entitlement to uh, GI Bill, post 9-11 GI Bill educational benefits or something like that, but most of them are not in the VA disability system, et cetera. So they just move back to wherever it is in the, in the country they decide to, you know, to, uh, to, to go, to settle, go back home, or they decide to, to resettle uh, somewhere else. So what that means is that in the vast majority of cases, the national government really doesn't have any visibility. So I, I, I give you that overlay so that our readers can understand a little bit about, about the, the, the magnitude of, of the issue that, you know, that number of people and the sometimes very great difficulty of finding and connecting veterans. So you can so you can appreciate what a, what a task that is as, as we've got spread all over the nation. Now there's a different element of, of the problem, which is which is of great personal importance to me, and it's also of great personal concern uh, to me. Uh, and and that's the fact that for large numbers of folks, their time in the military, particularly if they've served uh, in war, uh, has been has been stressful, but it's been very, very meaningful, particularly in terms of having established very close uh, relationships with their, uh, with their colleagues, uh, having been through some really, really tough circumstances with them, you know, particularly in the small unit, well, you, you know, platoons uh, uh, as well. Uh, and during their period of, of military service, folks have been told, you know, where to eat, when to eat, what to eat. Um, this is where you're going to live on post. This is where your kids are going to go to school. Uh, you know, all of all of those sorts of things. So here's your health care, et cetera. So we provide a great suite of, of benefits to folks while they're in service. 
But when they leave and they go back to wherever their living room happens to be, almost that entire support structure is now gone. And folks may have baggage in, you know, in, in terms of post-traumatic stress or other things from what they've experienced in, in the military. But they also go through something that S Sebastian Younger, who I'm a big, big fan of, uh, really defines as, as a transition order or a transition disorder uh, more, more than anything else. Um, if, uh, if, I could, uh, if I could go further, I would say that uh, you know, we, do, we don't know our service members very well in, in this country uh, anymore. We haven't had the draft since the end of the Vietnam War. Um, and, and folks who enter military service now are, are, are separated. They're separated somewhat ideologically. They're separated physically because they're behind gates and installations that are usually far off from populated areas. Uh, we speak a language that other folks don't understand, largely in acronyms and, uh, you know, and, and stuff like that. And we do jobs that the vast majority of Americans, and this is not any of their fault, uh, don't necessarily know about, uh, nor may they have any interest in. So, uh, so we've created a big separation, a big gulf between our, uh, our military and the citizenry they serve. Uh, and I think that exacerbates the difficulty of trying to re-enter society, trying to have a, a good, a, a good sound uh, transition. Uh, so those are some some of the major points that I'm concerned about, and I'm certainly happy to answer any any questions, other questions you may have. So when you think about the military transition, and everyone's transition process is completely different, what in general? tends to be the largest barriers to that transition. You mentioned how, you know, the societies themselves, the military culture versus the civilian culture, they're very segmented. But right. what are the barriers to making that transition from one to the other? Well, I, it, if th there's, uh, there's two piece, at least two pieces of literature that I might that commend to, uh, to, to your audience. And I first started to get really, really intrigued uh, by this issue when I read a piece that Sebastian Younger, who's a, who's a, uh, a very skilled reporter, uh, writer, film director, uh, and also happens to be trained as an anthropologist, uh, a, a piece that he did in Vanity Fair magazine, I think it was in May of 2015, may have been 16, but I think it was 2015. And he talked about the difficulty of the, of the military transition for many of the reasons that I identified, uh, that you worked with a small band of, of brothers, uh, if you will, you, you, know, you spoke the same language, you did the same jobs, you went to the same places, your kids went to the same school, your spouses all uh, associated with each other. And now you go off to a group of people uh, much, more, uh, much larger, uh, much more diverse uh, in, 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 in many, many ways. And you don't necessarily have that, that common bond. You don't necessarily speak the same uh, language, et cetera. So, uh, so I, I really, really read that, that piece by Sebastian Younger uh, and, and I found it quite compelling. Here's one of the interesting stats that's in there and I'll allow, allow people to read it for themselves if they like. But one of the things that he, that he noted and that really got him thinking about the issue is that the prevalence of diagnoses of post-traumatic stress disorder in modern veter veterans has, is uh, approaching 44 to 45%. Uh, 
So he, he went back and he looked at the diagnosis of PTSD for uh, transitioning veterans throughout history. And I think the earliest, uh, the, the earliest uh, statistics that we have date back to about World War I or so. And he found that historically, the prevalence of combat-related PTSD in military troops has been 8 to 10%. It hasn't changed. It didn't change from the end of World War II to the end of World War I to World War II. Didn't change in Vietnam, hasn't changed since, except for now. So, so he was looking at this and he's looking at this delta of you know 30 some percent, up to 34% trying to explain what makes the difference. Uh, and he hit on in that short piece and it's only six or seven pages long, so it's a quick read. But he quit on this. So he, but he had hit on this whole idea of a transition disorder that really exacerbates the existing stress that people experience in combat uh, and in military life. All the moves and all that kind of stuff being then exacerbated by the difficulty of transitioning into a new neighborhood, trying to find a job, and trying to explain to uh, the general manager at a facility what it meant to be a platoon leader or a platoon sergeant of an infantry company in Carnegie Valley uh, or, or stuff like uh, stuff like that. Um, trying to, you know, trying to apply to a university to use your GI Bill, uh, not having come straight from high school or certain categories or, uh, or, 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 or statuses of, of college preparatory high schools. Uh, fitting in in a clad classroom, at traditional classroom atmosphere, et cetera. It's really, really compelling to think about uh, a lot of a lot of these issues. So um, that that's that's where he was going with that. Uh, and then he wrote uh, what I think is one of the seminal pieces in in this whole area called uh, Tribe. Uh, I think it came out in about 2018 uh, or so. And the in the technical title, gosh, I can't remember. I think I think it's Tribe colon on homecoming and belonging, uh, something like that, but a magnificent piece of, 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 of literature that uh, I really think every American uh, should read, particularly given the fact that we have a professional uh, voluntary military now. How does that fit into, for example, like here at Loyola, we have like the veterans practicum. When you think about veterans issues and how they manifest where does that intersect with the the legal profession? I think it I, I think it intersects or should intersect in, in just about every way imaginable. Uh, I, I think on what we really need on on both sides of this particular issue, and I shouldn't even say sides because we're all on the same team. You know, we're all Americans. We're all students. Uh, in our particular case, we're we're attorneys or striving to be so. Uh, it just requires a a bit more understanding and uh, and communication uh, to to understand where you know where people come from different backgrounds. You you took you took a different path to law school than most people do. When I went to law school, I took the traditional path. I went straight from college to law school. I went from straight from law school to to work. You know, I decided quite um, you know quite differently to to go off into military service. But we really all have the same backgrounds. Uh, and, and, and the beauty of places like uh, academies of learning is the fact that uh, we, we bring great thoughts, great experiences, um, great intellects to work. In. And I think just sharing those experiences and appreciating our different 
uh, thoughts, experiences, et cetera, is, is really paramount. It, it, it what make, it's, it, it's, it's what makes things work. Um, one, of the, one of the hard parts, of course, is that the profession of arms is, is, is a tough way to make a living. And uh, even after you watch movies like Restrepo by, uh, by Sebastian Younger or, or, or Carnegie, uh, and you see these young people who are st struggling to stay alive, but deeply committed to each other and the mission, et cetera, um, it, it might even be harder to understand how a person could po possibly want to make a career uh, in, in, in the military, et cetera. But communication is the key, like it is, uh, like it is in, in all things. Uh, and, and I think that returning veterans can learn a heck of a lot from, uh, from you know, the, their law school colleagues. And I think by the same token, uh, law school colleagues can really learn a lot from our returning veterans uh, as well. You know, communication is, is the key and working together is, uh, is everything. Well, I've kept you on for quite a while today. I'd like to thank you for your time. But before I let you go, I was just wondering if you had any final thoughts for our audience today. No, all I'd like to say is that um, once again, happy Veterans Day to our veterans. Special thanks to their, their families. Uh, and I make a plea to uh, all of our listeners, engage in public service. Goodness knows our country needs it now more than ever. So particularly folks possessed of these great legal talents and the great intellects that, that you have that allowed you to get to uh, this fine law school of which you're a student now or this great profession um, and that is the law. Uh, you know, give, give back. Public service is great and, and let's help all the people we can and we'll be, uh, we'll be a better city, better state, better nation and a better world. Our next guest is Wendy Reinhardt. Wendy is a PhD candidate whose research explores cultural competency challenges military veterans face when utilizing, obtaining, or accessing civilian services. One primary example of which is, of course, legal services. Wendy has many years of experience working with soldiers and veterans, helping them navigate their transitions from the military world to the civilian environment, both in her previous role as a military contractor and in her current position as a veteran services specialist at Truman College, here with City Colleges of Chicago. I'm very excited to introduce to the podvocate, Wendy Reinhardt. Wendy, welcome to our show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, first, can you talk about your background and what makes you so passionate about military veterans? Uh, sure, thanks. I'm actually a military brat and military spouse. Uh, my dad was in the military for 33 years, and then he decided to retire back in 2010. Before he retired, he was diagnosed with PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. For a long time, I was trying to figure out what PTSD was and how it affected our family. And not only did it affect our family, I started noticing within our military community that PTSD was a big factor. Not only that, uh, the bravery and the honor just to serve made me so passionate and proud of our service men and women that it kind of encouraged me to give back to them by working at the USO and American Red Cross just to help them and their families. So my previous guest introduced a topic to us that discusses a gap between what was sort of described as the civilian world versus the, the military world. 
Can you describe these two parts of society as you see them? In the military world, we actually distinguish both worlds because they are completely different. To give a, a better description is I always, I always tell people to look at the civilian world as an earth, take a chunk of that earth and make a small earth, and that would be the military world. So the military world is exactly like the civilian world. We have every type of job. You can think of every nationality, ethnicity, culture, race in one small uh, community. When we say that there's a gap between the civilian and military world, it's indicating that the military world does not know how to speak in civilian terms. And the civilian world, people there do not know how to speak in military language. When you look more to the gap, the military world has its own culture, its own language, its own hierarchy, it has a structure. And when it comes to civilian world, you identify civilians with freedom. So in the civilian world, a person can have their own choice. They can go on vacation without asking for permission and vice versa. Now, if you wanna look into when the gap started, it all starts with the revolution and the civil war. When the military went to war and came back, the civilians would actually tell all their civilians, hey, you need to get out. We need these positions for the military personnel. And so they would get hired and a lot of civilians would lose their job. Now, when we got to World War II, it was very patriotic. People were all about protecting our military troops because they were excited that we won the war. However, this is where the military decided to start the gap between the civilian and the military because they wanted to develop and invest on nuclear weapons and keep a lot of stuff secret away from the civilians. So they started pushing the civilian world away. Now in Vietnam War, this is where the civilian world decided, okay, we do need this gap, but this time we are going to push the military away from us because they were upset of what the military veterans were doing overseas, which was not only affecting the military veterans, but society as a whole. So they started mistreating the veterans and started separating. In other words, it was an honor before the Vietnam War to join the military, but now it became a choice to join the military. That's where the gap started showing. Now in the 1990s and till now, especially in the 1990s. This is when they started noticing that the military veterans were not getting the help that they needed because some of them would come out of the military, go back home, and it was hard for them to find their place. It was hard for them to get integrated to the society. And that's when the government's like, you know what, let's help our veterans. And they started trying to find ways to help them get jobs, employments, or like, let's give you an incentive if you hire a military veteran, let's help them with military benefits, like educational benefits. And then now in the thousands, this is where the civilians were like, you know what, let's help bridge this gap as well. So both military society and civilian society are trying to bridge a gap, but there's still the miscommunication between both worlds. So to, to summarize, would you say, would it be fair to say that after World War II, the gap between, as you've been describing, the military and civilian world 
that was intentional just because of the way that wars were being conducted back then. And it was fine up until the point where the draft went away. Then after the draft, that's when, again, the, the powers that be, so to speak, they realized that this gap has to be closed in order to essentially for recruiting purposes. And so now we're sort of feeling that ramification still, but would you say that where we are at right now is that, is the gap still present? Yes, the gap is still present. Even though in the 1990s, they started noticing that they had to bridge the gap. As we progress and society keeps changing, the challenges that military veterans face at this moment is completely different than what military veterans faced in the 1990s. With my research, we're trying to figure out these military veterans that are coming out of the military these past two to four years, and they were living in this civilian world. What are the new challenges that they are facing since our society has evolved over time? And I'm guessing that that evolution has a lot to do with things like social media and other things. Like when I went through, for example, uh, social media was there, but it wasn't as pervasive as it is. Like right now, there's so much of someone's identity is on TikTok, for example. But when I went through, like I say, everyone had a Facebook account. But even then, people that were in prior to when I was there, like they talked about how, oh, this is a new army. Like it's, you can tell that it's those generational differences. Exactly. It's what's changed also, not only social media, but our new generation of military veterans are more accepting. For example, I'll just give you, like when my father was in the military, the don't ask, don't tell policy was in. If you were not straight, you were more likely to, if they found out, they would more likely find a way to kick you out of the military. But now our military veterans that are in within the military now and that are exiting that only did a short term a contract, they are actually very accepting. The military veterans that exited 20 years ago are completely different than our military veterans now. So the challenges that our new military veterans are facing when they transition out of the military is different and can be difficult because research hasn't updated since now. So research researchers and healthcare providers, everyone that is trying to take care of our military veterans are still focusing on the veterans that got out in 2010 or 2001, but are not focusing on our new military veterans that are used to you making TikToks and using Snapchat and Instagram to communicate not only with their family, but with the rest of the world. And so we need to look at those new challenges. What are the new challenges that they face in society now? So essentially it's people are still approaching this problem from an expired data set and you're helping to reestablish or to update that data set. Exactly. So what we like to say is when you go to the VA, every veteran asks each other, what kind of war, what war era are they from? and they can right away identify what challenges they faced during that war era and what type of mentality they had at that time that they still have now. So with that in mind, can you give us an overview of your research project 
and what you've learned so far? So my research is about focusing on the cultural challenges that military veterans face in the civilian world when they are accessing, uh, obtaining, uh, or getting any assistance in any type of civilian service. So the civilian services can be uh, healthcare, employment, legal, housing, social relationships, the list keeps on going. It just depends on where the military veteran goes. Now, what I've found in my research is that they are very discriminated. Uh, there's a lot of biases, good or bad. You know, there's the patriotic people that want to help the veteran. And there's those that hate the veteran because of things that they've heard or movies. And then there's times that they feel like they are taken advantage of because since their military experience, a lot of people have these preconceived ideas that they were molded a certain way and they can handle any type of, you know how they say, tough love. Some of the veterans don't want to be treated like that in the military. That's why they got out in the first place, because they wanted to be treated better. But civilians sometimes say, hey, if you got treated like that in the military, you can handle it in the civilian world. Of course, our audience here is made up of mostly law students and practitioners here in Chicago. And we know that veterans face a myriad of legal issues ranging from dealing with the VA to employment issues, housing, and most significantly, of course, is family law, divorces, child support, etc. But what can these attorneys do to better serve their veteran clients? What I recommend for our, to our future lawyers is if they do come across a client that is a military veteran and they identify themselves as a military veteran, they should establish a cultural competency, which means they have to say if they are military affiliated or not. And if they're not, they have to, it's okay to say, I do not know the military culture. I have heard stories, but I am not very culturally aware of the military culture. So it establishes a relationship and trust between the veteran and the lawyer. Now, if they lie and say, oh yeah, I know, I've worked with a lot of military veterans, if they do something that the veteran figures out that they have no idea about the military culture, that's where they lose that connection, that trust, and it's broken. Another thing I always recommend is just listening. A lot of the veterans say, please just listen to me. Good listeners will help the client and lawyer relationship with the military veteran. A lot of them just want to be listened. For just listening, it kind of will give you a better idea of the challenges that they're facing, uh, and you can help better navigate helping them. Well, we definitely appreciate you taking your time to come talk to us about your research today and just to help us explore the difference between the military and civilian environments as they are today. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for the audience before we let you go? Um, I just wanted to say thank you to all our veterans. Because of them, we have our freedom, especially in this great nation. Uh, if it wasn't for them, uh, we wouldn't be able to have a voice if you see a veteran, just sit down with them, buy them a beer or a meal, and just listen to them. 
and listen to their beautiful stories, where they have traveled, what awesome stories they had with their battle buddies or whoever they were in the military with. Those memories that they have are beautiful memories that they will never, never forget. Wendy Reinhardt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Shea, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Johnson. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.